1975, the year New York City was in the thick of navigating through a historic fiscal crisis that many feared would result in municipal bankruptcy. How did the city get there? Well, it was truly the bad old days. The city's population and tax base were declining, and yet budgets were growing, supported by a growing habit of borrowing for operating expenses. Until, in 1975, the city was close to being shut out of credit markets entirely, and the house of cards was on the verge of collapsing. So what had to happen to turn it all around? Stay tuned for a very special episode. Welcome to What's the Data Point, a podcast of Gotham Gazette and the Citizens Budget Commission. I'm Maria Doulis of the CBC. You can find our work online at gothamgazette.com and cbcny.org. This is a very busy time, so be sure to check our sites regularly for new content and follow us on Twitter at Gotham Gazette and at CBCNY. Ben Max, my co-host, is at TweetBenMax, and I'm at Maria Doulis. Send along feedback to episodes and your requests for future guests and topics. Today, we bring you a special episode. The current fiscal crisis has led many to compare it to the 1970s fiscal crisis. CBC hosted a discussion of fiscal experts who helped the city navigate that crisis and merge from it to achieve fiscal stability. The panel includes names familiar to close observers of local government, Steve Berger, Stan Brezhnev, Gene Kalin, Dick Ravitch, and Alaire Townsend. They have stepped up to guide the city, the state, and their authorities through more than one crisis or challenge, and we aptly named the panel Sages of the Ages. It's a fascinating discussion. Listen to them give the insider's account of how the fiscal crisis unfolded and what had to be done to solve the problem. In particular, the sacrifices that had to be made, the partnership and collaboration among the stakeholders, and the leadership required to steer the ship through. Then they give their assessment of how the crisis compares to what the city faces today and which of those elements are or aren't present. These lessons are so important at a time when the city is seeking $7 billion in authority to borrow its way out of its budget gaps. While the executive budget projects both growth in city-funded spending in fiscal year 2021 and growth in the municipal workforce over the course of the financial plan. As our panelists underscored, the severity of the crisis necessitates hard choices, including spending cuts, be made and be made with urgency. That's all for me for now. Enjoy this discussion. Good morning. Welcome. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Andrew Ryan, president of the Citizens Budget Commission. And we are fortunate to have all of you today and also fortunate to have our panelists, the Sages of the Ages, some of the most wise and experienced New Yorkers who have helped New York State and New York City through fiscal crises um, of the past and some of the toughest times we've had. So thank you all for, for joining us. It's almost cliche to now say that New York's obituary has been written and has been wrong, but the obituary's fallacies is, is not because of happenstance. And it also is not just because of New York's strengths, it's because of people like today's panelists and many other New Yorkers who work tirelessly, creatively to help New York rise again and again. Yet today, through no actions of our own, we find ourselves in another time of crisis. We have a health crisis that's already claimed the lives of 22,000 New Yorkers. We have an economic crisis brought on the need to shut down the economy. Um, around 2 million unemployment claims filed in New York and 
real national GDP will decline at an annual rate of 30% in the second quarter of this year. And a fiscal crisis estimated to reduce below projections to city revenues, $8 billion over 16 months, and over four years at the state level, $60 billion of state revenue. We're in a fiscal crisis. And this is not only a crisis now, but there's great uncertainty on the economy and on the virus. So these numbers could get worse as time goes on. So hard choices will have to be made. That'll take political and civic will, leadership, compromise, cohesion, and yes, sacrifice. And our panelists know all about that. I'm lucky to have them all as friends and we're lucky to have them here today to talk about the lessons of the past and how they apply to the future. We'll spend a little time on the past, but we don't want to all get you know, stuck in that. We really want to apply those lessons to the future. I'll do a brief introduction of our guests, preferring to allow our first question in a round robin for people to introduce themselves a little about where they were in the 70s fiscal crisis. But just to do that brief introduction, I, I will say today we have Steve Berger, He'll talk about the Scott Commission from at the state, and he was the first executive director of the Financial Control Board and many other things since. Stan Brezhnev, who from the Lindsay administration, the Ford Foundation, came back to the Koch administration as, as HRA commissioner and first deputy mayor. Gene Kalin, who was general counsel to OMB, straddling two administrations from Lindsay to Beam, and eventually head of MAC. Dick Ravitch, who somehow in between saving the UDC and saving the MTA, found a little time to broker some of the most important deals of the fiscal crisis in saving the city. And Alaire Townsend, who I, I guess Congressman Koch found out there were great people in Washington, brought her up to be budget director and eventually deputy mayor for economic development. So much experience in so many different ways. So welcome and thank you all for joining us, our, our panelists. Thank you for coming today. Hey. Okay, so let's get everyone on the screen and we'll level set for our diverse audience about the 1970s fiscal crisis. Um, why don't I start um, with Steve Berger and could you tell us about your journey from the Scott Commission um, to the FCB, what the FCB was, how you got here? Let me level set first to, to give people a sense of what the 70s problem was like. The city of New York, on the first day of a fiscal year, had already spent every dollar of tax revenue it was going to collect in that future year. They had spent it, they had borrowed it the year before, more, and they had used the basic borrowing plus capital funds and used it for operating. So you, you had a, an institution which was a private institution would have been fundamentally bankrupt. I had, uh, I ran the Scott Commission, which was a commission established by Rockefeller and his beating Lindsay over the head with a club. Uh, and we hired the Maxwell School. And the Maxwell School did a study of the New York City financial uh, situation, out of which you saw that the city really was going to run out of, run out of money. And it was coming very quickly. Uh, Hugh Carey got elected governor in the, in the, right after his election. I met with him and said, you know, this whole list of things you're going to do, you're not going to be able to do because there's no money. He said, don't be silly. Arthur Levitt says, he's the controller, there's plenty of money. And then we, we, the, the government uh, got seated and we were sitting, I was a commissioner, we were sitting in, in, in Carey's office with 20 other guys. And we were focused on, let me tell you about, the UDC crisis, which came first. And in the middle of that discussion, I said to a group of people, a whole group, I said, you know, we got to solve this. 
because in three months, the city of New York will be out of money. And Hugh Carey took his glasses boom on the table and said to me, I never want to hear again that the city of New York will be out of money. And that takes you to either Mr. Kalin or Mr. Ravitch or somebody, because that was the beginning of denial. And the you-know-what was about to hit the fan. Let's turn to Mr. Kalin, though. Gene, welcome today. Thanks for joining us. Tell us a little bit. You can even spin back a couple of years on, on what you're doing to uh, facilitate borrowing and then hit, hit where Steve uh, left off. Well, I hadn't thought about that, um, Andrew, and I, I'm, I probably should keep it in the in the archive. But in fact, I was working for the city, as you mentioned, as the general counsel of the budget office. And my function every year in the springtime was to go to Albany and try to get help for the city's budget. Albany was not very much in the mood to provide that help. It wouldn't reduce expenditures. It wouldn't increase revenues. It certainly wasn't going to increase state aid. The one thing it would do was to allow the city to borrow money to cover its budget gaps. And then it changed the law so that the city could count those borrowed funds as revenues. The consequence was that the city always reported a budget surplus when in fact, as Steve indicated, it was running a very substantial budget deficit. If you run a deficit, you have to be able to borrow money. In the spring of 1975, New York City had a total budget of about $12 billion. It had an accumulated deficit, these monies that were spent ahead that Steve mentioned, of $6 billion or half the budget. Those, those numbers were pretty big back then. And it was running an annual deficit of $2 billion. At that point, spring of 1975, the city's leading bankers, who had been its principal lenders, <clears throat> came to see the mayor and the governor and told them both that nobody would lend the city a nickel under any terms, that the amount of the borrowing had gotten so high and the explanations for it so vague that the city was not trusted in the bond markets and that it was hard to see when the city would ever be trusted again. The state's answer to that, or its first answer to that, was to create MAC, the Municipal Assistance Corporation for the City of uh, New York, called MAC while we were drafting it and instantly called Big Mac once it was uh, adopted and implemented. It was a kind of financial heart-lung machine. Its, uh, its uh, function was to borrow money on the city's behalf while overseeing the city's reform of its books and its budget practices with the aim that the city would eventually get back into the bond markets on its own, no longer need the heart-lung machine. Why was it created? Well, it was created because, as, as Steve says, the city needed borrowing to pay its bills, but it was the only technology available. It, it, one, one piece of history that's worth remembering, 1975 was not the first uh, financial crisis for New York City in the 20th century. In the 1930s, at the depths of the Great Depression, there was another financial crisis, almost as big in its own times as 1975 was for us. The city had 
$2 billion of debt in those days. And that was more debt than the other 48, all 48 states in the union combined. The solution to that crisis was what was called the bankers agreement. The city bankers came in and said, we will lend you money, but here are our terms. And the terms were extremely strict. They limited uh, expenditures, they limited taxation, particularly on banks. They charged very high interest rate for very short-term loans. The only way for the city to get out from under the bankers agreement was the same thing that applied in 1975. City had to demonstrate that it was capable on its own of running a, a tight financial ship. I've always thought it was uh, poetic justice that uh, uh, Fiorello LaGuardia was elected mayor in those days uh, in order to, to take the city from uh, distress to, to uh, success. So we had uh, LaGuardia and Koch, two of the city's great populist mayors, who were both elected uh, and immediately charged with responsibility to demonstrate their financial acumen and their financial responsibility. Both succeeded wildly. Thank, thank you very much. I will mention that in that first fiscal crisis is when the Citizens Budget Commission had its founding and was very helpful to the city in that reform. We'll do maybe another program on the Citizens Budget Commission history, but why don't we turn to Dick. And, and so how did you get dragged into this? Well, I had been asked by the governor to try to save UDC from bankruptcy. Um, and we were successful in doing that um, because we learned early on that the holder of a general obligation bond did not have a security interest in any of the revenues that UDC was receiving and therefore we were free to take a revenue away from the existing uh, creditors of UDC and pledge it to get fresh money. And that was what led to the creation of the Municipal Assistance Corporation because we took that lesson and took the sales tax away from the city of New York and made it payable to um, the Municipal Assistance Corporation. Uh, I was the only person in the room with Governor Carey when the chairman of Citibank, J.P. Morgan, and the president of Chase, David Rockefeller was the chairman, but it was a little awkward for him since his brother had contributed so significantly to the crisis <laughs> that led to New York insolvency. Uh, and I was there May 2nd um, when they told the governor that they would no longer underwrite the notes and bonds of the city of New York. Um, we were shocked. We asked them effective when. Walter Riston said effective immediately. Uh, I said, what is a nice young kid like me doing in this moment in time? <clears throat> uh, nobody said anything further. They left. I called Jay Golden said, Jay, get your ass up here to the governor's office. I want to see a schedule of all the city's debt maturity and 
the current cash position. Um, and uh, I called my friend Peter Goldmark in Albany and uh, we sent the state plane up to bring him down. And I read uh, while I was waiting in Governor Kerry's office uh, for Jay to come, I read the Wall Street Journal and it described how a guy by the name of Paul Volcker had been named head of the Federal Reserve Bank in New York. And I called him and uh, I took him and Peter Gomark to dinner that night at Chrisella's Steak Restaurant on 46th Street. Uh, that's really not germane, but I get a long friendship uh, that I think all of you know I have with Paul. And um, in any event, um, I want to make two points, Andrew. Uh, the current crisis is so fundamentally more serious than what we went through in the 70s. We, we were able through, for, for several reasons, the political leadership uh, and my colleagues on this broadcast are talented, dedicated public servants. Every one of them uh, were, played a major, major role uh, in what evolved over the next year. Uh, when Ford turned down Hugh Carey's request for money in September, and there was that famous Daily News headline, Ford to City dropped in. The business community in New York, the leaders of our financial institutions, of our major insurance companies, they got together. They realized the seriousness of this. I remember some of them went down and played golf with Mel Laird, who was the Secretary of Defense, and Jerry Ford's best friend. And they had, uh, they surrounded Bill Simon, who made his living underwriting the notes and bonds of the city of New York. And ultimately, the Ford administration turned around. And by October, I and others were in the Treasury Department negotiating what ultimately became a $3 billion line of credit that the federal government provided the city. And nobody doubted that that wasn't enough to get us through. <clears throat> the problem today is we do have no way of knowing what the revenue loss, sales tax, income tax, and even the property tax revenues are gonna be that New York City and New York State are gonna to have to face. It could be far worse, depending of course, when the city opens, what happens to unemployment, what happens, what decisions commercial enterprises uh, make. Do restaurants and retail stores start paying rent again? Or will there be substantial reductions in the assessed value of property? Will uh, irresponsible politicians stop suggesting that people should be relieved of an obligation to pay rent? Uh, nonetheless, landlords have an obligation to pay property taxes. Um, there's an incompatibility between the two. So it's very, very hard to measure. And even though uh, the Republicans are mm -hmm. criticizing Nancy Pelosi's um, uh, 
proposed bill, that at least would provide enough money um, that would cover uh, any possible shortfall in revenue according to the projections that some academics and people at the Federal Reserve um, made. Last of all, let me just say this. Um, borrowing is not a solution to this problem. Uh, we cannot borrow what will amount to billions and billions of dollars, i.e. the revenue shortfall that the city and the state will suffer with. Um, because when we have to pay it back, um, it would require uh, an enormous increase in expenditure, which is not something we want to saddle a city's future with. So the only answer is massive federal appropriation um, at this point in time to get us and, and other places around the country similarly situated uh, so, through Dick, the uh, period. Let's come, let's come back to that. I think that's an important part um, of the solutions, but I still want to go around the horn and bring Alair and Stan in. Because Alair, you came into a budget in, in, I think, when did, you, when did you come up to be budget director? And you came in, what did you find at that point in time? Well, I was recruited from Washington, D.C., and I arrived uh, in September of 1981. I uh, had only lived in New York for one academic year in the past. So I made myself flashcards, Golden, comma, Harrison J, New York City controller. Um, I had a lot to learn. And uh, so I did it the way my mom taught me flashcards. Um, when, what did I find? <clears throat> well, it was, uh, it was the end of the first balanced budget, according to generally accepted accounting principles. Nat Leventhal had convinced uh, Ed Koch that even though the law said we have to use generally accepted accounting periods and to produce a balanced budget until the next year, we should do it a year early and that would uh, both be good practice and it would send the right signal. So we had done that and uh, everybody was pretty proud of ourselves. The uh, level of services were the lowest uh, they had been in years. Everything, everything was cut to balance the budget. And uh, about two weeks after I arrived, the city did its first bond deal on its own and the, for the astounding sum of $75 million. $75 million to a city as large as New York City is kind of eyewash, but we were pretty pleased with ourselves nonetheless. I'd like to just uh, talk a little bit about why the city was in such extremists as to cause the state to create a financial control board and uh, the city to have to bond out all kinds of operating deficits from the past. Well, 
yes, sure, there was profligate spending, but during the 70s, the city's economy went through a cataclysmic change. Basically, we lost all of our manufacturing jobs. They just hemorrhaged away. 1969 to 1977, we lost uh, 600,000 private sector jobs. We lost them. They weren't coming back anytime soon. So that created uh, spending needs. You had to help some of these unemployed people. And it certainly cost us uh, billions in tax revenues. The problem was that nobody wanted to acknowledge that. Lindsay and Beam just really didn't step forward and say, all right, these changes are happening. We've got to adjust our spending. We have to rethink where we are. They wanted to continue business as usual. And so all manner of terrible budgeting practices took place, bonding out deficits, um, which ultimately happened, but using the cap capital budget for to pay for operating expenses, things of that sort. Uh, so uh, when I got there, the city was basically uh, clean, cleaning up and it was uh, reforming all of its terrible bad practices. And it had a leader in Ed Koch who grabbed the bull by the horns, didn't make excuses, just said we can't spend what we don't have. And he made a virtue out of saying no. Made a virtue out of saying, we'll get to the, so one of the lessons, I'm hearing a couple of lessons of, of, of the past, of what you've said. One is the virtue of saying no, and the other is the, the vice of not changing in the face of a changing reality. Right. Um, so to say, so Stan, you came back. Now, you, you kind of cut your teeth if, if I, I were on it. In the late 60s, expansionary social programs, this is a time of innovation, of growth, of, of, of opportunity in this social program world. You come back to HRA commissioner in, in a world where there was no money. Tell us a little about that. So uh, I, I think Alaire uh, accurately and vividly uh, described uh, uh, both the lead in and what was uh, uh, happening in, in the city and, and Ed, Ed Koch's uh, uh, Ed Koch's approach. Personally, I did. It is ironic that in the Lindsay administration, I, part of the business I was in was creating things like the anti-poverty programs and the community corporations, which I would stress played a very important part in improving the well-being of the city and its uh, uh, and its citizens. But we're talking about decades later, and things like that had fallen into less than the most uh, uh, efficient uh, uh, enterprises. So, I, but I did have the perspective of two different imperatives. The war on, on poverty growing out of uh, 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 Lyndon Johnson's programs, the imperatives in the city, which certainly uh, 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 exhibited the same kinds of conditions that uh, uh, engendered the, that the, those national uh, those national programs, and then over over time contributing to the mess that uh, uh, the seventies turned out 
to be uh, 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 financially, though I wouldn't say they were the only uh, 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 the only part of it. So I, I would want I do want to talk about though what's entailed in doing the hard stuff of governance and delivery of services uh, in uh, uh, the context, because I, I, I think it's been well described today by, by people who were intimately involved, what the big picture was, was like and what had to be done uh, on that uh, stage in order for the city to have any chance of, of getting out of, uh, out of that mess. But it also required that the city operate in a way with less dollars, in a way that every dollar counted, in a way that uh, uh, efficiency became a, a, a byword, in a way that as Alaire described, no was the starting point and you had to be persuaded to spend dollars. We literally had no capital budget to speak of, a few community, federal community development block grants. The police force was about 20,000. Uh, so no was a big part of, of how we had to operate. But the other part was, I think, equally important. And that was going into places like uh, the Health and Hospitals Corporation, the, uh, the public assistance operation where starts had been made to improve the operation, but were still bleeding money. One of the anecdotes that I remember from the early days of the Koch administration, which came out of OMB, uh, because part of uh, uh, the reality in, in a circumstance like that is headcount is the equivalent of cash is, uh, of, of cash is king. And controlling headcount, bringing down headcount, was probably the most essential item in the arsenal that uh, that city had. That the city had, but how to do that? And one one day at some at, at some meeting, OMB reported the, the steps that had been taken to reduce the headcount at the then Board of uh, uh, of Education, uh, and only to conclude that they didn't know if any of those steps had. Uh, resulted in actually reducing to the target uh, uh, to the target headcount because they couldn't accurately count what the what the headcount was. I make I tell that story because it illustrates another difference between then and now. There were so many things that can that. Uh, had a consequence of either inefficient spending, excessive spending, uh, uh, poorly conceived spending that could be corrected. It's very different now. That low-hanging fruit, that fruit on the ground, to a great extent does not exist. Now, that does not mean that there aren't opportunities to do things better and more efficiently, and judgment calls uh, to make as to how to allocate resources or how to effectively spend those uh, those resources. But there were many such opportunities. And the last point I would make is because you cannot over, you cannot uh, 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 not focus on the leadership uh, quotient, both from Albany and from, uh, and, and from City Hall, and, and Ed Koch is the, the personification of it. He, in a sense, did a Churchillian thing, 
is uh, I, I know that may sound like a, aggrandizement, but in in, in context, I'm not sure uh, uh, that it uh, that it is. He created a public mindset for and supported it and enhanced it at every uh, at every opportunity that in effect unified the city and its understanding of the situation that it uh, was in. That's not to say there weren't aggrieved constituencies or uh, vested interests that, that combated or protest, but overall, for that period of several uh, of several years, uh, the city was engaged uh, collectively in getting out of the uh, getting out of the mess. And I wonder if that can be repeated now. Uh, unfortunately, I have some doubt. So I, I, I hear what you're saying, what, what you and Allaire have talked about is in part the ability to say no, you talked about the information to manage and creating that public mindset. And I would kind of round that out to say that there's a crisis, we don't have the money. And one of the other components from the fiscal crisis, and I'd love to hear some thoughts on it, was active engagement from various constituencies. But let's first talk, I'd like to first talk about the business community and then labor. On the business community, I wanna to get to Dick in a second, but I also start wanting to start with Gene, because you, you, you told a story once, and if you, you would about, as the bankers came in, I, I think you told me that you were sent to meet with the bankers because you, you had, had the right way of speaking in a nice suit. But um, <laughs> I think, I think um, you, you also told me about Felix, uh, coming in, if you want to share like what that kind of bringing in between the business community and government started to look like, and then I want to turn to Dick. Well, you forgot to mention the Harvard degree. Um, Abe a, a did send me out to talk to the bankers because uh, he thought somehow that uh, I spoke their language. Um, I, I didn't speak theirs and, and, and they didn't uh, speak mine. But I think the story uh, you uh, you referred to is uh, uh, when when uh, the crisis hit and the business community did come in to take a look, which it had not done for many years. It it had uh, taken the city for granted. It did not understand how the city operated or or uh, what its uh, finances were. Business community came in. They 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 learned a lot of things that surprised them. And the the kind of the symbolic episode is. When, when uh, Felix Rodden, who uh, at the time was the chairman of the Municipal Assistance Corporation, was meeting with Jim Cavanaugh, who at the time was the first deputy mayor, Cavanaugh explained to him how borrowing was a revenue. Felix expressed surprise uh, at that. And Cavanaugh said, well, Mr. Rodden, you don't understand municipal finance. And Felix, said, I may not understand municipal finance, but I understand bullshit. <laughs> so thank you very much, Gene. Um, so, so Dick, now you and I have talked a, a bit about the business community's engagement then and, and now. Part of, the, part of the formula that made things successful, in part an outgrowth of the very direct need for finance and, and the, um, the potential um, loss of access to the credit market, but also the business community engaged generally in the management of city government. Tell me about um, what you, you think happened then and why or what is different now about that? Well, I can only tell you, I have such a vivid recollection of 
introducing Victor Gottbaum and Al Shanker to Walter Riston, whose politics were a little bit to the right of Marie Antoinette. Um, but when it came to the city of New York, uh, Riston was a powerful and passionate advocate for what was necessary in order to restore fiscal uh, sanity uh, to New York. And he acknowledged that uh, underwriting debt that was used for uh, operating budget purposes was not a practice that uh, was commendable. Uh, in any event, I've asked myself a lot in the recent month or so, what was different? Well, what I know that was different was that these major financial institutions owned the premises that they occupied um, back in the 70s. And today they don't own them. They're tenants. They were sold to fiduciaries, often to foreign pension funds, foreign investors. So their interest in the intrinsic value of real property isn't what it used to be. Uh, and that may contribute. I also think um, that uh, Hugh Carey and Ed Koch uh, were smart enough to bring people like my colleagues here, Gene and Steve uh, uh, and Alaire and Don Comerfeld, who's no longer with us, um, into government um, and who were very sophisticated, uh, able people and uh, could communicate um, uh, as peers with leadership in the business community. Uh, plus, uh, and this is in no way critical of either Henry Garrido or, or George or any of the major union leaders in New York, but um, Gopam and Shanker had a particular skill. And I remember Victor and Felix uh, uh, and I having dinner many times at a sleazy Italian restaurant on Third Avenue somewhere. Uh, and Pat Patterson lived near where the Gottbams uh, lived in Brooklyn and they got to know each other. They could not have been different. Um, but there was a sense of common purpose, uh, of determination to make sure that New York City um, got out of the mess. And um, there was no dissent. There was a control board, as has been pointed out. Um, uh, which Steve ran with, with great skill and aptitude. But what is significant, I recently told the de Blasio task force this story, uh, which I, I, I think is worth repeating, which is Ed Koch, when the control board cut major expenditures out of the city budget, uh, Ed Koch would go on television and criticize the control board. Uh, when he got off camera, he turned, I was often with him, 
he turned to me, and I'm sure Steve probably remembers this, um, and Ed Koch said, thank God for the friggin' control board. Um, and yeah. um, with that kind of political leadership, uh, uh, he and Kerry, who didn't get along in many ways, uh, but when it came to dealing with the city fiscal crisis, they had a relationship that was professional. Um, Ed listened to um, the people that, like Felix, who um, had a leadership role, uh, appointed by Kerry, and Kerry listened to Kummerfeld, who, uh, and then Allaire, um, and uh, it, it was a it was a different context, and I regret that that doesn't exist today. So, Steve, how do we how do we get get people together? Okay, compromise is not necessarily culturally. Um, part of what we do today. And, and Dick talked about two things, and, and we'll talk to Stephen instead. He talked about um, business and labor talking together and coming together, which doesn't seem in the, in the cards. And there's always been a tension between mayors and governors, good times and bad times, but coming together during bad times. How do those things happen? What recommendations do we need now for our political business and labor leaders to move forward on this? I shouldn't say brain transplants, but let me make a couple of points. I think Dick, Dick has hit on a couple of points which are really central to going forward. Number one, we talked before, and O'Hare mentioned the fact that the city of New York went from a period of economic depression in its economy to a period under Ed Koch where the economy turned around and revenues picked up and business picked up. That was a big part of the future what made the future possible. Dick has pointed out in his comments that we're heading into very uncertain, uncertain times. And a lot of, our, a lot of our, our revenues, the tourist business, people's ability now, they've learned they can work out of office, they can be doing, they can be sitting in Florida and running businesses in New York. Secondly, the business community in particular at, that, that Dick was talking about were New Yorkers. Every one of those people thought of themselves and their business as being New Yorkers. The guys now, whether they're New Yorkers or not, are not. They're global, global leaders, and that's a problem. And on the labor side, we don't have the same kind of folks who grew up in the streets of New York running those institutions with the, with the same history. The, the last, so, that, so we need the federal assistance. And we have to work much harder at trying to put people together who have no history and are basically one piece I want to come back to, which is under some control, and we put, the, we, we put all the restraints in place. I had two major failures at the control board, and somebody used the word headcount. By the way, you don't necessarily protect the future budget by taking out heads, because what the unions understand is the heads will always come back. We had 390,000 employees now. We had 390,000 employees in 1960. The heads will come back. You change it by changing what we did with the systems, how you run the operations. I lost two fights. I lost a fight on the Board of Education, and I lost a fight on the Transport Workers Union. And the fight was over work rules and changes and defining what the responsibilities and the jobs and necessary operations were. I lost those fights. The, the, the education fight was marvelous. 
you know, the, the United States senators and the New York Times and everybody came in to protect the, the, the uh, Al Shanker's cola and everything else. The only, the only people that George Washington Gandhi didn't show up, but everybody else showed up at that meeting and just ran over the notion that we had to change how we did business and decide it's not just taking heads out. It's finally deciding what is important for the city to do and not important and changing how we deliver service. I think that's the one tool that's ours to work on. The other issues, the federal government, for example, and the economy turning around, I really think this is a worse and more dangerous situation than we had back in the 70s. Understood. I will say um, that we both have a short, medium, we have a short, medium, and long-term problem. We shouldn't forget that we have 15,000 more employees than we did at the peak before the last recession, or 33,000 more than we had at the trough. And as we put out a report the other day showing that we have a financial plan that virtually keeps headcount flat, despite um, revenue projections going down, and probably, as we've talked about here, um, going down worse. So yes, we need to right-size you know, our, our, our government and, and history has shown headcount going up and down, but you're exactly right. We need to right-size what is affordable and simultaneously restructure how we do things. Because doing things the same old way has brought on the same old problems at times. Stan, how, we understand why it's different and why the business community is, is, is different and the labor community is different, but how do we bring things, how do we bring things together? Is there enough of a sense of a common sense of crisis today? Uh, not yet. Uh, and, and part of it is, uh, uh, and, and we need to be mindful of it, uh, the, the state and the city and the, uh, and the region has to take a certain posture with the, the federal government. That, uh, and, and advocate strongly and in coalition with others across the, the, the country to get that federal aid because there is no way out of this uh, uh, mess without a substantial federal uh, uh, federal commitment. So putting that uh, putting that aside, that I think everybody has a, has identified each of the of the elements that ha that ought to be present as one thinks about how to reshape. Uh, uh, and restructure the, uh, uh, the, the role of government in New York City and the, and the state and the, the role of, uh, 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 of the workforce. Uh, some of these things are extremely difficult to do. Steve told the story of the Board of, uh, uh, the board of Education. There are many uh, 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 such, such stories. Leadership is required, collective will is, uh, is required, and a culture that values this kind of thing. Uh, uh, even in, in the basic year-to-year, day-to-day operations of, of city government, there needs to be a mindset that thinks in terms of efficiency, that yeah. thinks in terms of what's the most effective way to, to spend dollars. How should we be organizing uh, uh, ourselves. I'm the first to recognize how much city government and its services have moved over the, the last decades, like uh, the Health and Hospitals Corporation. But the truth of the, the matter is that there are many elements within uh, the delivery of city services that are more than susceptible to a more rational 
uh, a more rational uh, approach. But it takes it takes a commitment level that uh, does not today uh, exist, in my view. This is the first year, as I, I recall, where we've even had a PEG program in uh, in, in New York uh, in New York City, and that ought to be a given uh, every year, even if. Uh, uh, even if the ultimate decision isn't to uh, uh, reduce expenditures, just to have that discipline and that uh, uh, and and that mindset. Uh, part of the consequence of having boom years, and I, I don't know if if anyone has made an allusion to this, but up to this point, uh, before the the virus, up to this point, the city has enjoyed an enormous boom in, uh, in well, its yeah. economy. It, it's under, uh, I've never seen anything uh, yeah. uh, uh, like it. And that has contributed, I think, to a lowering of uh, 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 the guard, as it, uh, uh, as it were, a sense that everything is affordable. There's no such thing as a, a, a nonsensible add-on. Uh, to uh, 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 to existing services, and uh, I, it hasn't been noted because we're we're focused on the, the condition that we're in. But the halcyon days seem to be uh, burning out even before the virus. We had the uh, the uh, Medicaid generated crisis in New York State, which was surely going to reverberate uh, to uh, uh, to city uh, uh, to city finances. Uh, other signs that there was a, a, there were things were weakening in the in the economic picture. So the virus has overwhelmed, uh, and its consequences has overwhelmed all of that. But it was happening; uh, it it, uh, it was happening anyway. And, uh, and I, I want to come back to how important leadership and 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 messaging is, and create a culture both within government, amongst opinion makers. Uh, and, and in the general population as to the nature of the circumstance that we're in. And secondly, to create a process where there is both transparency and some significant interaction with the, uh, with the public and elements of the, uh, of the public. Because even in the worst of times, budgets continue to be political documents that represent policy choices and uh, uh, what values we have in society. So it, it's really important, especially since this is not a, a, a short-term uh, circumstance, that we develop ways to have full engagement as we figure out what to do, but then to have the, the discipline and the, uh, the steel, the will uh, uh, to do what's required. No, I, I, and I think that's a challenge. For example, yeah. we've talked here about the need for federal aid, but at this present time, the need for federal aid diverts attention from the crisis that we're in because people are looking for the solution generally and hope for the solution generally. And also um, um, think that with because that solution will happen, we don't actually need to do some of the things that we talked about that Stan, you talked about in terms of efficiencies and focus on management uh, and Steve talked about. So again, it's about how we generate that, you know, political will, the civic will. Um, Gene, do you have any uh, thoughts from the healthcare side also? Anything historically, but I also know, note that you um, are chair of uh, 
um, one of my local hospitals here in, in, in Brooklyn and Maimonides and, and um, the allusion to the Medicaid budget gap. What are we facing here and how do we get people in that compromise crisis mode? Well, let, let me pick up first on what Stanley said. We had it in the financial crisis of the 70s. I think we have it now. Um, in, in the 70s, in the beginning, people didn't believe how serious it was. The unions didn't think this was anything other than being softened up for collective bargaining. The man in the street didn't pay an awful lot of attention. But eventually, it got to the point where the city was not going to be able to meet the next paycheck or not going to be able to uh, send, send out the uh, welfare checks, um, it, it became indisputably <clears throat> not just a problem, but a crisis. And not just a crisis, but one that was uh, literally uh, life, life or death for the city. And once that atmosphere was established, you could get everybody together, you could get them to accept the same set of facts. Politics didn't go away, but, but some of the posturing uh, was was uh, left behind, and, and and in the end, while it wasn't uh, it wasn't perfect, and there were certainly things that we didn't do, the the, the, the solutions worked, and they and they stuck for a very long time. I think we're there again. I I I don't know that people have fully focused on the impact of the virus and the lockdown on state and municipal budgets, but. Those impacts are so large and so indisputable and have such an uh, obvious and apparent cause that I think people will not, the, 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 the politics of denying them will not, uh, will not arise. There's an opportunity for leadership, but <laughs> that's only an opportunity. We've talked to all of us have in one way or another about the state and the city. It's true in the healthcare issues that you asked me about, Andrew, but the, 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 the first step here that you really have to hope for in, in New York is that the mayor and the governor and their respective staffs and their respective allies find a way to see this as a common problem and find a way to look for real solutions. If they do that, then I think there is there will be public support for the steps that need to be taken. Um, does anybody else want uh, yeah. to take on the, oh, yeah. Dick, please. Just a fast comment. I couldn't agree more with what Gene just said. If the governor and the mayor would stand together on television every night and convene jointly the major business leaders and labor leaders of New York, we would get a hell of a boost in this political effort that's going on in Washington. Let me say, the bill the House passed, and I'm very familiar with it, the details of it, solves a lot of potential problems and is critically important for New York. But it is being attacked by people like this jerk Senator Scott of Florida, who says the uh, red states should not support politically liberal blue states because of their uh, inability to manage their affairs and their budgets properly. I, I, I do want to point out that New York City and New York State pension funds send $2 billion of pension benefits, cash, to people living in Florida every year. Uh, and they, 
those residents um, in Florida should elect a different senator, one that at least respects the fact that the, their ability to move down to sunny Florida was because they were treated fairly and decently uh, by the city and state of New York. Well, not only that, but the balance of payments uh, to and from the federal government has been stacked in favor of the red states like Florida for a long time. Pat Moynihan used to annually do an analysis that showed how much more New York State sent to Washington than it got back. But I would say that uh, no matter how much we get, end up getting, I assume we get something, from the federal government in this time of need, uh, we still need to do better than this business as usual budget. We, we have political leadership in this city who seems to think that any efficiency measure, closing down an obstetrics wing that is underutilized is a terrible service cut uh, because it might affect some union workers. It cannot be endured, it must be reversed. That kind of narrow-minded thinking to me is crazy. The old adage is that there's no Republican or Democratic way to pick up the garbage. I would also add there's no progressive way to pick up the garbage either. And until and unless the mayor uh, talks realistically about what needs to be done right now and shows some willingness to do it. I think getting the city council members to come along is going to be very difficult and getting the public to come along is going to be very difficult. The indispensable ingredient at times like this is political leadership, plain speaking about the problems we face, the choices we have, and the preferred options. And we're not getting that except that the federal government should bail us out. The federal government should give us aid, but it's not going to bail us out when there are things we need to be doing that we are not. It's got to be both the governor and the mayor because not only do you need the city council guys, you need the legislature. Yes. And the legislature now also is, is, as Alaire points out, has a, a progressive view of everything, including garbage and their own importance. And so you got to have both leaders at both levels if you want to make the changes that have to be made. A, a word about health, uh, Andrew. Uh, Please. Because for, it's, it's taken years, decades, to even begin to make inroads on the reliance of bricks and mortar and large scale institutions, as opposed to uh, much more effective approaches to the delivery of, of healthcare, an emphasis on, on primary care and population health and so on. It's taken years to get there. And I see as one possible uh, risk outcome of, uh, of, of the crisis that we've been in is it, uh, uh, not just a distraction, but a, a re-emphasis 
on uh, the, the inpatient care crisis of, of medicine uh, uh, and, and eroding the progress and not allowing us to go forward. The truth of the matter is much of the disparate results in, uh, uh, and consequences of the virus can be traced inadequate to uh, primary care and, 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 uh, uh, and so on. Uh, so I'm really concerned that in the rush to uh, uh, deal with the, the, the crisis that we lose the vision that we had for a different kind of healthcare uh, delivery system and the, the, the hospitals become reascendant as it were. I, I, I see uh, um, Burger Commission Chairman nodding his head. We've been talking about that Stan and many of us have. In fact, what this tells us is we should, we should commit a larger percentage of the public funds and Medicaid and other funds to primary behavioral and preventive care and not to try to build more beds for single events, which is what some people are gonna, it's a totally wrong thing and we ought to be moving in that direction. And let's go Amen. to Gene before, before uh, we, we go to another subject. And I'm gonna take a little liberty for those of our guests. I know we said it was an hour. I think we're rolling well, but we might bleed over a few minutes if our panelists are willing. So, so as, a, as the chairman of the hospital board, Andrew, as you pointed out, I do, I have to say a word for hospitals. It, th this crisis did remind us how when you need a hospital, it is important to have hospitals there who are fully staffed, fully equipped, and, and fully funded uh, to deal with the problems that only hospitals can deal with. I, I don't disagree with Stanley or Steve that the model of healthcare delivery needs to change. It needs to be pushed out into the community. It needs to become more a question of preventive care and of, of population health. My hospital, Maimonides, is one of the leaders in that effort in, in, in our own community and, and in much of Brooklyn. But it, it we can't forget while we are doing that, that the, the strong hospitals, the good hospitals, the ones you want to survive, have to be adequately, they're, they're struggling as, as it is, and, and they have to be adequately funded and they have to be supported. Yes, and, and this is going to be the challenge both to do that as well as conceive of emergency planning and preparedness as different from hospital capacity. And I, I think that is um, one, one of the challenges. So we've heard here of needs of political leadership, of, of joint um, mayoral gubernatorial leadership, business leadership, civic leadership. We've talked about the needs of, to change government and focus on efficiency, but also federal help. And I would argue that there's a tension in the political discourse as people focus on federal help to not focus enough on, on changing government. The question is also what gets us to that point? As I think Gene pointed out, we're in a health crisis, an economic crisis, and the fiscal crisis kind of down in people's mind. It would be a tragedy to have to get to such a crisis as we did in the 70s, where we are paying employees with script or massive layoffs for us to take the actions that we have now. I just, one question before we wrap up though, no one has mentioned what I think might be different than the 70s is the strength and importance of the social services community and, and progressive elements of both political and housing stability um, 
um, advocacy to this equation. Will we get there without them at the table? Dick talked about you know bringing together labor and business at one point, but we have didn't really have that wing as such a strong player then. Am I wrong on that, or do we need them in a different way now? Well, the first thing we got to do is keep them from all going broke. Because one of the things we have done over the last decade in this period of grandeur is we have depended upon not-for-profit social service agencies to provide a large amount of care and support into many communities, and we've underfunded them, mm -hmm. and we don't cover their real expenses. We don't support them very well, and, and they are not integrated either into the health delivery system or into anything or the educational system, and we treat them as if they're going to, you know, they're the house servants who you sometimes give a tip to and sometimes you even pay their bills. And that is a disaster if you want to deal with community health and you want to deal with basic issues. We have failed to deal with those people intelligently and bring them into the delivery of service in a way that they are actually doing. Any other thoughts on the social services? I know, Stan, you've worked between this um, a bit and I just wanted to make sure that we didn't lose you on this. Well, they're more than an important constituency. I said earlier that the context here has to include a transparent discussion of potential choices, alternative uses of resources. They need to be at the table. And if we're going to, we can't have a consequence that uh, uh, effectively diminishes the level of, of, of services to poor people or, or exposes their, uh, them and their, uh, their vulnerabilities. So we have to figure out options to somehow maintain what is required, uh, but at the same time uh, uh, extract the efficiencies, figure out better ways uh, uh, to do it to, uh, uh, to achieve goals. And, and they have to be a part of this, uh, of this effort. It, it, in the old days, it wasn't just uh, uh, you know, that, that union leaders and business leaders had, uh, you know, had a beer together. They, they, they came up with some approaches. Uh, the unions bought bonds. The, uh, the yeah. unions uh, 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 agreed to uh, 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 different approaches, perhaps time limited, but uh, 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 they did. And they had a reason to do that, right? Absolutely. And it's if we went bankrupt, all their contracts would be abrogated. But and that. And the social service agencies have a stake in the the viability, the the success, the future of of, of New York City and and New York State, and they're smart, caring, uh, uh, caring people who lead those organizations who advocate for the for the interests of the, the, the poor and the, uh, and the vulnerable. So they need to be involved in, uh, in this intimately. Uh, but are, are we seeing the kind of cross-fertilization that's needed right now? Or is it mostly silo-based discussions? We're not. We're not. Uh, um, I don't know. I don't think there is. Uh, and <clears throat> if I may, uh, one sort of concluding comment, uh, the issue of how much revenue New York City and state are going to lose uh, over what period of time 
is the biggest unknown that we're facing. Mm -hmm. And if I may say, there has never been a more important time for Citizens Budget Commission to play a major, major role. The competence and the, indep <coughs> the independence of that organization uh, has got, as well as Ronnie Lowenstein and the Independent Budget Office, have got to play a major, major role in giving credibility to any projection of revenue loss, which will both determine what our budget priorities ought to be, and I think enormously strengthen the political case um, for federal aid. Thanks. I'm going to conclude with a round robin question for all, all of you. Um, because these are dire times. The past has been dire. We pulled out of it. These are dire times. Now we've talked more about the challenges and some suggestions about the solutions. But let's talk about the future. How optimistic are you about New York's prospects? What are the risks to that optimism? And how do we mitigate them? So let's, let's start may I, with Gene. How optimistic are you about our prospects over what time and what are the risks that we should be addressing? You know, my, my personality, uh, Andrew, is to be pessimistic. My, my mentor, Felix, was always sure that the next fiscal crisis was uh, around the corner. I, I've now been in New York uh, for almost 50 years. And the fact is, it has never been a wrong time to bet on New York. Sure, we have plenty of problems. We have economic problems. There, there are trends that are running against us, technology, dispersal, uh, our tax policy, their leadership. There are all kinds of issues you can, you can name, and it's true. It's hard to put your finger on a solution uh, to all, all, any of them, much less all of them. But I, I remain fundamentally op optimistic. I think New York has great strengths. I, uh, that are not going to go away and they are not going to be uh, duplicated. We're going to go through a tough time, but if we take advantage of the opportunities as we've all been uh, discussing, uh, I think our strengths will reassert themselves. Stan, optimism, pessimism of the future. Uh, well, I, I, I'm, I'm like uh, Gene, a, a pessimistic real, realist. I, uh, uh, um, um, uh, by nature, but uh, the truth is the city has always bounced back. And while I say that, uh, I, I'm still a Knicks fan. I think the Knicks are going to win the championship this year. So uh, that, that's, uh, uh, that's proxy for New York City bouncing back. But we, we have to do what's required. Uh, kidding aside, this is, uh, uh, this is serious stuff. Every, people have to step up to the plate. The leadership has to, uh, has to be there, and we have to demonstrate the willingness to understand what's required and to do it. Steve Berger. I'm very, very concerned about the next probably two or three years, because I think we have, we have a terrible opportunity to, you know, to make things worse, uh, given the fact that some of the local leadership, local political leadership, is really, to, to call it mediocre is to give it absolutely high grades. Uh, it, is, it is really terrible. I, on the long term, on the longer term, we do have the strengths that everybody's talked about. And just, we got Broadway, we got the opera, 
We got the museums. We got lots of things here that sooner or later people will get on airplanes and come to see again. So longer term, I'm comfortable. I'm just worried about the next two and a half, three years. And I see, I just don't see the things being done that would get us to the next stage of recovery. That, that scares me. I will ask Blair if she could fiddle with her screen and get her picture back and turn to Dick in the meantime, optimism, pessimism about the future? I'm optimistic. I, I share Steve's view. I'm optimistic in the long run because of the intrinsic strengths uh, that New York has culturally, uh, economically, uh, the propensity in the world that we live in for pe people to move to cities. And um, uh, so I would suspect a population growth. Uh, I think that in addition to the problem I've discussed several times in the course of this hour, uh, the revenue shortfall. The other problem is public service and politics don't seem to be attracting the same quality of people that they did when you had um, a Stan Bresnov and a Noir and a Steve and a Gene. Um, uh, and the Dick Rabbit. Major lives to um, public service. Uh, that, that is a cultural thing that this crisis ought to get us uh, uh, aware of the fact that the younger generation uh, has an obligation for public service, for social commitment, and to get involved in politics in a way that um, very few people are these days. Very good points, very good points. Alaire, please. Well, I'm tempted to break out in the chorus of I love New York, because what this hiding in place uh, period has brought home to me in great force is how much I miss uh, the things that I can't now do in New York, the theater, Carnegie Hall, Lincoln Center, ballet, um, all of those good restaurants. It's just it's to me it's like a fairy band and i love it and i believe it will come back because i believe there are a lot of people who feel just like me this is what we want this is why we are here and that makes me particularly sour on leaders who are not leaders because i think that as strong as new york is it's fragile in many ways. It can't withstand everything. And I want us to come back from this affliction as we have from many others. And I want the leadership that will make that come true. Well, I appreciate um, that thought as we at the Citizens Budget Commission, you know, certainly we were, um, listen to all the elements mentioned here were, you know, pleased that neither the governor nor mayor proposed to balance the budget at this point with borrowing or tax increases and we didn't talk about taxes so we talked a little about borrowing um so that's the first step and we need to encourage all those right hard choices to be done and i think this discussion leads to that um and encourages people to work together to come forward both within and outside of government to step up and make those hard choices